Welcome back, friends, fellow philosophers, and authors to this Wild Isle writing cast. I am privileged to have back with me Brad of King's Wrath. You got it right this time. How are you doing, Brad? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good. Thank you for having me. Uh, you're, you know, you're, thank you for coming on, man. Uh, also, you guys might know Brad as Wraith or codename Wraith on his other uh, social media profiles. Um, today, I've asked Brad to come join me to talk about immortalized combat. That is the proper kinesiology of a fight or action scene in fiction. Uh, I am, um, let's say, uh, suitably, suitably is not the right word. I don't know. I'm excited to talk about this topic today. Uh, as I'm sure you are as well, Brad. Uh, before we begin, um, Brad, is there anywhere that you want to send people where they can either see your work or keep up with your stuff, uh, whether that's writing or uh, music-related, anything at all? Nothing that I haven't already mentioned here before. Mention it again, Brad. Mention it again for those new viewers who do not know you. King's Wrath on YouTube. Check us out. Uh, you heard it, King's Wrath. Uh, if you want to know where my stuff is at, as always, you can head over to wildisledit.com. If you'd like to perform a miracle for me today, you can click on my Kickstarter link. We only have a week to go. Uh, it'll It's a long shot, but hey, you know, miracles happen sometimes. I also direct you over to my stories and excerpt section. I actually just posted a brand new story today you can find there it's one of the wand smoke the seven scholar stories i'll have audio for that hopefully by the end of today if not by early tomorrow um also i've got essays up there they're fun the barbie analysis has been well received um my novels available there as well if you go to the books section wand smoke broken check that out or you can listen to the whole thing on audio in the audiobooks section where you could also find all of our podcasts. Hey, if you're a writer, uh, which you probably are, listening to this writing cast, you can also hire me as an editor. I specialize in stylistic line editing at the Wild Isle Style Guide. Again, at my website, wildislet.com, uh, under the editing section. And if you'd like to support us, you could check out the support section as well. I'd really appreciate it. I have three options, a dollar, three dollars, or five dollars a month, or a one-time donation. Anything would be fantastic. Or fantastic. Can I pronounce my words? We'll find out. Anything else? I don't know. We're going to begin for today talking about action scenes and fight scenes. So, Brad, uh, just to start this conversation off, when you when you either read an action scene or read a fight scene or write one, what is it that you're expecting to see? What is it you're expecting to get out of it, right? What is it that really constitutes an action or a fight scene to you as opposed to, well, any other scene? So I thought about it. I think there's a couple of different purposes you can have to a fight scene. One of them is to um, create a layer of immersion where you're triggering the, the fight or flight instinct in the reader. You put the character in danger and the, the reader, ideally, if they care about the story, they're, they're invested. They're thinking, oh, crap, what's, what's, uh, what's going to happen here? What's, what's, uh, what might go wrong? Another one is you can it, it can it can help you illustrate the stakes of a story. Like, for example, showing... But if you have a fight scene between the hero and the villain, you can show what the villain is capable of and what the hero is capable of. An easy example comes to mind to be Conan, where you know you know he gets into quite a few fight scenes because that that pulpy action approach to those stories and the various villains he faces are capable of different things, and he has to take different approaches to uh, to deal with with each one of them. You can also use it to introduce new plot elements. If all of us, if um, a character, the characters are 
random uh, randomly attacked out of nowhere you can say oh crap well, what's what what's uh what's this new threat that we're uh, that we're about to be faced with and that can lead you on a new uh, um, plot threat new dimension of the plot um and another, and another i thought of is um reflective of your view that an action scene spends the spends the build up built up tension uh, of the story i think could also be the case that you could have the opposite problem where if you keep going on and on and on building atmosphere building tension it can kind of drag where it's like okay is, is anything going to happen here um those are the main um purposes i th- could think could think of as being the use of an action scene anyway I was very thorough. I was very, I'm very impressed, actually. Let's go through each of those. Uh, we'll talk about the first two first. And the reason why the first two is because um, they seem to me to be somewhat linked or not somewhat very linked. So we had um, the sense of danger, right? Uh, but the second one was stakes. And in the first one, we do have a uh, something at stake, and that is the protagonist, uh, him or herself, or at least some thing or someone that the protagonist cares about very closely, and they're in physical or physiological danger. Um, You mentioned that that touches on the fight or flight response. So it's a little bit more visceral, say, let's say then something being at stake like a boxing match. Like if you lose a boxing match, that might hurt your career, uh, hurt your stats, right? But you're probably not going to die, right? you, You might have some permanent injury, but you might have that if you win anyway. And so that's not really what's... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, if you're up against uh, uh, Mike Tyson, you might lose your ear. Uh, you, might, you, you might lose a lot more than if you're up against Mike Tyson. But uh, <laughs> let's see if we can we can parse those out a little bit, right? So is there something uh, most fundamentally different between the stakes being deeply, let's say, physiological or primordial or primitive or instinctive, right? That's that fight or flight response versus, let's say, the stakes being significant to the protagonist and we would hope thereby significant to the reader but not necessarily being so uh you know rooted in our biology right is there is i mean is that biological difference the difference that that separates those two things or or is there something else i'm not sure i understand what you mean so so in the first case you've got like that visceral fight or flight response right like you know, the protagonist might die, they might be permanently injured, someone they care about might die or be permanently injured. Whereas when we are uh, showing the the stakes, right, in the, the, the Conan scene, like you're not really convinced that Conan's going to die. You know, you're pretty sure he's going to live. So you're not s- sitting there afraid that that's going to happen. But you are, you're seeing something like a, um, almost like a status, being at risk like is he going to get set back and have to to come back and clear this obstacle a second time is he going to have to run away like there's a question more about what it is that is going to result from the conflict and it's not a question of life and death per se yeah you're reasonably sure he's going to win the fight the interesting part is the how of it because because like i said before it's going to be varied based on what sort of villain he's up against in any given story yeah. So, do you think that that is the the key difference there? Whereas the the first way that the action scene, the first thing you mentioned, is that it does touch upon that primitive fear instinct in us. Whereas there is a more sophisticated, uh, let's say, more conscious or cognitive, um, let's say, 
establishing of, of stakes if you if you make the consequences or the stakes themselves something a little bit less visceral. Am I understanding that right? I think so. Yeah. So that's interesting, actually, because what that suggests is that you ha- now, right away, we've established different ways that you can affect the reader with an action scene, not by changing the scene per se, but by changing what is specifically at stake. Uh, and that's going to color or flavor the action scenes in different ways. Um, you know, me saying this out loud, you can tell me if you can think of any examples. Uh, I've read a lot of fight scenes that fall flat and uh, other ones that don't fall flat at all. And I wonder if a lot of the problem is that the author is establishing the wrong kind of stakes in this exact way, right? So it works with Conan when you see him wrestle a gorilla, even though you know he's going to win, right? You know that Conan's going to beat the gorilla or at the very least not be killed by the gorilla, as unlikely as that is. But it's still exciting to read because what's at stake isn't necessarily Conan's life. That's not what's being put there as the risky component. But I've read a lot of works where it's like Conan wrestling the gorilla, but they're pretending that what's at stake is Conan's life, but the character very clearly, like Conan, isn't going to die. And so therefore the action scene just does not work because I don't I don't I don't believe it. Can you think of any times where you've read a, a book where you find yourself not believing it as well? Mm. I would immediately come to mind. I, th- I think most of the action scenes I've read in stories work at least, con- at least reasonably well. Well, maybe you've had better luck because uh, one of that occurs to me uh, out of recent memory are some of the fights in the Dresden Files. Um, they're really high octane and the action is, is pretty big, but there are many instances in which uh, Butcher tries to fake out Dresden himself as being at any real risk. But there's a huge issue where, like the Conan stories, like you can't really pull that off. Like I just, I, I know too well that actually, no, like he's not at risk. He's not going to suffer any permanent injury that is going to really get in the way of him being like the badass wizard. Because, to, to be frank, he's uh, Jim Butcher's like ego projection. That's what that's what uh, Harry Dresden is. So you like you kind of you get that wish fulfillment vibe from it. And maybe the wish fulfillment's not even the problem there uh, when you have the action scenes. Like I'm thinking of um, when he is, he's like attacked by a scorpion and he's in an elevator and the elevator is falling and he's got to keep the elevator from tumbling down to like survive the scorpion. I think it's in the first book. And then he later fights like a, a bunch of the scorpions and they're coming at him all at once. And I think he, he tries to blast them all with a fireball and it doesn't work. In the moment it doesn't work, I know full well that he's not going to get stung up by a bunch of these scorpions. Like it's, it's, it's like the thing that is, you can't fake out the the death, right? Because it's what we're looking at here is the wrong thing being put at stake. If somebody else that perhaps was significant to the story might, might've been at risk, that's a little bit different. Like, okay, this character might die or this character might suffer in some permanent way, or uh, Harry might fail to do something else that will, that he's really, you know, long after, um, but yeah, the stakes, if you put the stakes in the visceral, in the life or death moment, it does seem to me that 
uh, you actually have to be able to follow up on it. You have to pull off like, a, I don't know, a Song of Ice and Fire level. We're going to cut Ned Stark's head off. And then like once that happens, like you, the, the reader is kind of going to believe it every single time that if you threaten the life of any particular character, you know. It's it's like if you go to mug someone with a knife, you kind of have to cut them first to show that you're serious. Speaking from experience, are you? Uh, unfortunately, not. Um, and I won't say any any more because uh, any further jokes might get us kicked off of YouTube. Uh, we, yeah, right. Uh, we had two more. We had. Right, building on that point, I would think to cite Conan again as the example, it's often something else that's at stake. It's not necessarily his life; it might be the life of the of whatever comrade he has at the time, or the damsel he's trying to rescue, or he has to stop this evil and contain it so it doesn't escape in the world and do, I mean, and, and just wreak, wreak havoc. Yeah, or he's got that's he's about to lose. Those yeah, or he's about to lose some loot uh, if he doesn't, and often, and sometimes he does goes back and saves the damn damsel and loses the treasure um, okay so we had two more um, so reasons for an action scene or purposes to an action scene one was the uh, thing that I always oh, it was plot we'll talk about that one first um, to further along the plot um, you know tell me about uh, either an example or perhaps an instance where you've read or, or used that in your own writing just to use an action scene and the point of it is to progress some plot element or to introduce a complication into the plot as a whole um, some of the examples that come to mind to be in my first book where there's various um, various action scenes where they during during the travel sequences the characters are moving from point A to point B and something interrupts their progress at one point there's the two of them are attacked by a troll and other assassins from the king show up it's don't i don't know that i followed through very well on most of those but that was the idea anyway to add some new complication that keeps you invested in the story now when you added those elements in do any of those obstacles end up um, significantly changing the pathway to the ultimate goal meaning like they were going to go you know by these means like directly there but um, you know the obstacle basically stops their plan, and they have to reformulate the plan in order to succeed. I think I did. I don't know that it's the strongest example, but in in the latter third of my first book, there's a um, we're we're getting towards the end of their journey, where the heroes are coming back to their home country, and um, the wizard Arthuros at one point they're they're trying to get a travel plan together. And the one plan is okay. We could we could sail down the coast and go halfway across the country to the city we need to get to to find you know the prince's allies, or we could cross through this very danger through the goblin hills, this very dangerous territory. But we'll come out at the southern. We'll come out at the northern border of the country and be right near the city we need to be in. Like I guess that's an, that's an example of where it's uh, altered the course of the story. I don't know how convincingly, but uh, you know. It worked out. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fairly convincing, and it's uh, it's a good example because it suggests what you should do, right? Because you could just say, "Well, you're traveling." Like people will do this, particularly if they're very familiar with tabletop games. Um, and you know, tabletops are fun, but there are some things about those games that you they don't cross over well into fiction. One of which is, okay, we're traveling from point A to point B. Um, I'm going to put action scenes in here just so it's not boring and so that it stretch out time. Is that is a terrible idea? 
The reason it's a terrible idea is because those scenes, therefore, actually don't have anything at stake uh, believably, right? Unless there's some other plot element where you're permanently changing a character, but then, it, of course, that's going to have the same effect as, okay, now we have to make a decision. Are we going to travel in this direction or this direction? They're going to have different consequences. Now we have conflicts about how we're going to make that decision. Once we made that decision, is it the right decision? It's going to determine the obstacles that we face, and maybe we're going to have to turn back around part of the way through, right? Uh, or we might lose somebody along the way or, uh, you know, face some other complication that we weren't ready for. Like, if we just taken the damn long way around, then maybe, like, we wouldn't have lost this person, had to go now rescue them from these goblins, and then we find out, like, oh, there's some other greater evil, so now our main goal doesn't even matter until we solve this thing. Like, th those are good complications, because they lead to, well, complicated outcomes, as opposed to, you know, oh, here's a fight scene in between getting here and there. Um, I have uh, an example from Wan Smoke Broken that I'll use when they go on a manhunt for one criminal who had, uh, let's say, caused the death of multiple yokels in town by giving them uh, essentially fortified hallucinogenic analgesic mushroom elixir, uh, which they overdosed on because he didn't have the measurements settled yet. Uh, but yeah, they do. Uh, the characters, the protagonists, they all go on a manhunt after him, but when they uh, get to the city where he is at, they find that he is way too well guarded. They are in dire need of a better plan and better arms. And so they end up having to go further south down river um, to a city and acquire, let's say, a uh, allotment of, of weapons that give them somewhat of an edge to try and get this guy out of the city and, and take him all the way back up to town for a trial. Um, that's actually quite fu a quite fun deviation because it results in a bunch of other things happening as a consequence of, um, let's say, prior events being uh, complicated by them getting captured before that. Um, so you start to see the complications stack onto one another like we just described. Now, the very last bit was my um, theory. Uh, I don't know if I call it a theory or not, but that action scenes most fundamentally are the expenditure of tension. Um, and I'm going to make a continual argument on top of that, um, that action scenes are just the spending of, of tension, but they within them are the building and spending of tension, right? Um, so uh, I guess I'll pitch that at you and you can tell what you think. Uh, now, I didn't originate with this idea I'm about to say. I think I got this from overonminds.com. Uh, Aussie Hart, I think, said this that um, all action scenes should be written in the same with the same structure as plot, meaning that an action scene itself has an exposition, um, it has an inciting incident, essentially a rising action full of complications, eventually reaches a climax, uh, a falling action that's usually very short down into a resolution. What do you think of the idea that action scenes, in fact, do have plot-like structures usually? That would make sense to me. I think that's a good approach if you want the action scene to be as impactful as possible to the story. I'm trying to take something and approach something like that in my own work in progress where there are action scenes paced out throughout the story. And just to cite one example, the first time the hero encounters the main villain, 
is an action scene, and the hero is pretty much overwhelmed. He's, he, he, get, he gets a glimpse of what the villain is capable of. Yeah, so that would be essentially, um, you've got the exposition where you've introduced the villain, right? Um, the inciting incident is whatever terrible things the villain is either doing or threaten, threatening to do. The establishing of stakes is demonstrating what the villain is, is capable of doing, and then from there, um, any action that you know, it, can't talk today. Any action that arises is kind of like the rising action, um, in which you're going to have complications like normal until you reach the climax, the deciding moment of that fight, and then you get to see who wins and who loses and what that means, uh, at least in the immediate moment. So, uh, is it apparent to you how that might? tie into my idea of building and spending tension if if in fact uh, action scenes are often structured like plot then i guess the question is does that does that interrelate with the spending the building and spending of tension i think so because if you structure things uh, if you structure the scene going by that um structure idea probably be a bit of a complicated balancing act but you can keep things tense and keep the reader guessing what's about to happen next yeah I, yeah the way that I, I look at it is just the way that you described it right so you lay out who who's involved in the fight or who's involved in the, the chase scene or whatever type of action scene it is um, and by laying out who's involved, you also lay out what they want, right? Because they're people with motives. Uh, those motives established allow the stakes to be set up, and then the stakes are put in, or the stakes are put at stake with the inciting incident, whatever the conflict is that is at the center of that particular action scene. Um, now, now what we've done there is built tension in the same way you would do in the exposition of your larger stories plot, right? You have the characters, you have their motivations, something is at stake because they want something or want something not to happen. And then you introduce a conflict, right? So it's exactly so far, it's exactly the same. Now, as you hit your rising action, all of the action itself is this, I would argue is the spending of that tension because you you have the tension and so anything moving toward the stakes resolving themselves is kind of a deflation but if you have complications in your action scenes and i have these in my notes called turnabouts right where all of a sudden something the stakes either change or they elevate in some way within the scene right um that rebuilds the tension like maybe um, you thought you were just being robbed and then someone pulls a gun out, then all of a sudden now it's your life at stake. And then, um, maybe like you're able to dodge the bullet and you're about to close in, but they grab someone and hold them as a hostage. Okay. Now it's not you, it's this other person. And like that kind of changes things and like they're able to get away a little bit, but then, you know, you see what I mean? You can, um, you can continuously complicate the conflict until you eventually resolve the or result at the climax. In which case, at that point, you've now spent so much of the tension in that action scene that you need to get out of the action scene in order to build more. Like you can't have any more complications once you've re you hit the climax, and so you allow the consequences of the however the stakes were 
the consequences of whatever happened in regard to what was at stake uh, resolve itself, and then you're able to move out of the action scene in that way. Um, that's that's how I think. If we look and we are going to analyze some action scenes that we have written, um, we should see something like that happening in order to build tension and then spend it through, um, let's say, attempted resolutions at a conflict until we get to a complication, spend more, you know, build more, spend more, build more, spend more climax resolution. Uh, do you think that, that that's what we're going to find when we go ahead and look at our, our own action sequences? Maybe so. Probably your approach to be more conscious than mine. I think that this um, this scene I post, uh, pasted in the document is a few years old. Maybe my book. Uh, well, actually, these are from some short stories that I, I pulled, so maybe they're a little newer, but they're a year old now. Um, and I, I don't consciously go in trying to structure an action scene that way. Um, I if I I would be those that kind of person who'd frustrate myself. So a little thing about me: I'm not very great at mathematics, and uh, whenever I took any mathematics courses at university, I was frustrated because math professors are usually people who are talented at math. Of course, they would be. Um, and so they would go to show us something. They would do math on the board. And I would ask, how is it that you got from this part to this part? And then I would get deer in the headlights. And then they would just do it again and then do it again. And if I asked too many times, they would just start explaining what a variable was. And it's like, that's not my question. Why am I saying all that? Well, they could do it without having to know what they were doing. They they are un- unconsciously able to do mathematics. Um, and to some degree, when I go and actually do the writing bit, it's unconscious. Um, and so whether I do it well, I have to find out when I come back. <laughs> I think a lot of us end up in that place, though. All right. So, Brad, who would you like to uh, start today? Would uh, Would you like to start reading uh, an excerpt from your piece, or do you want me to, to lead us off for this little uh, live Wild Isle uh, writing cast analysis. I've, I've got my, my little excerpt in front of me. I suppose I could go through it. Um, I'll just look for a cutoff point. I think I know where it is. Yeah, like this is fifteen hundred words. Yeah, you don't have to read the whole thing. Just uh, start where you would like and finish off where do you think you've you've gone sufficiently. And if there's a part where you want to comment midway through be you know be my guest say ah this is you know this is the part we were just talking about this is what's happening here if you want or you can do it all at the end oh uh, yeah I'll, I'll probably save the commentary for the end uh so, so yeah so i got a piece here or i got, got an excerpt here from ruins in the mist is a short story i posted on mines a number of years ago i did it in three parts and this is from part three the setup here is um wizard a warrior and a rogue which is um brothers and their uncle have gone into ancient ruins looking for treasure and uh, things have not gone well for them. Nor and Galen nearly tripped over themselves fleeing into the chamber, half expecting the pursuing skeletons to reach through the stone and pull them back into the fray. And Kana stood facing the now sealed door, his back to his nephews as he raised his staff in defensive stance. The wizard stood trembling, his teeth clenched and his knuckles white as the undead hammered at the door, throwing themselves like battering rams at the barrier between them and their prey. Now what? said Banor, having to yell to be heard through the commotion. But a mere moment after his query was voiced, the pounding at the door ceased. The skeletons could still be heard hissing and growling outside, but the noise they made slowly grew distant. They're retreating, said Unconnus in astonishment. 
They've given up already? asked Galen. That can't be, said Banor. They must be regrouping, preparing to break through the door. Then we have to look for another way out. Galen turned and ran further into the room, and Banor took a defensive stance next to Ancanus. But a moment later, Galen spoke again. There's something in here you should see. Banor wheeled around and approached his brother. In the center of the chamber, the archer stood before a large, rectangular stone slab etched with intricate runes and symbols, with a block of lettering on its top written in a language they did not recognize. Ancanus then joined them and looked at the stone up and down with marvel in his eyes. Remarkable, said the wizard. This must be millenniums old, older than any kingdom in recorded history. Wonderful, said Banor abruptly. But unless that thing is hiding an exit from the, exit from this godforsaken place, it's of no use to us. Ancanus responded by tapping the stone with the heel of his staff, and the stone gave out a low thud. It might, said the wizard. It's hollow, at least partly. How do we get it open? asked Galen, examining the stone for any sign of a seam or other weakness. This top part, said Ancanus. It looks like it could be removed, I think. Banner walked to the head of the stone, placing his hands below the lip of the top layer. Like a lid, said the warrior through gritted teeth as he set his arms to work. Containing what? asked Galen as he took up the opposite side of the stone, and the brothers started to strain to lift, slowly inching the slab upward. Ancanus prepared to assist them with magic, pointing his staff at the stone, but he froze and went white with terror. No! the wizard yelled. Before the word met, before his word met either of the brothers' ears, a skeletal hand reached out from within the stone and grabbed Banor, hurling him at Galen, sending the brothers tumbling aside. The stone slab fell and shattered, sending bits of rock and ancient dust all flying all through the chamber. A shrill, unholy scream filled the air, and the brothers looked up from their stunned stupor to see a skeletal figure, clad in tattered robes and clutching an ancient wooden staff in its hand, rise from the coffin, floating in the air as it propelled upward by some wicked force from beyond the mortal realm. "'Gods, no,' said Anconis, his staff violently shaking his trembling hands. "'It can't be real!' A foul, mocking laugh emerged from the jaws of the lich as it descended toward him. But a great cry sounded nearby as Banor charged, his sword already flying forth, poised to cleave the skeletal menace in two. The blade phased through the bone as if nothing were there. Banor looked at his weapon in confused horror, and the lich laughed again, striking out with his staff and sending him flying backward. It then turned his attention back to Anconis. Inside the coffin, the wizard yelled to whichever of his nephews would, could respond. The phylactery, destroy it! Galen obeyed, nearly delving, diving into the coffin as he rummaged through its foul-smelling cloth lining. He found a vial, no bigger than a flask, crystal clear and filled with a dark red liquid he knew to be blood. The lich screamed and flew toward Galen, knocking him aside. The archer lost the vial, but it landed harmlessly on the floor and remained intact, dropping so heavily the stone beneath it cracked and dented. The lich went to strike at Galen again, but it was interrupted by Ancanus, whose ancient, whose glowing staff delivered a blow to the lich's back, causing it to buckle forward and roar with pain. Ancanus then turned then turned down to the phylactery, raising his staff above his head like an executioner's axe to deliver the death blow to this abomination. But the lich retaliated. The wizard's staff was wrenched from his hands, dropping to the stone floor below. The lich then grabbed the wizard by his neck, suspending him in the air for a brief moment before, before hurling him across the room. Ancana slammed it at the door through which they had entered the chamber, and broke clean through, leaving a pile of rubble and a greater cloud of dust in its wake. Banor, at last recovered, sprang at the lich again, bracing beneath his shield. The skeletal mage's staff slammed against the wood and metal, shattering into a thousand pieces and leaving Banor's arm in shock as he cried in pain. The commotion, in the commotion, however, Galen had moved, lunging for the staff Ancanus had dropped. Standing just as his uncle did, but moving faster with a rush of adrenaline, he raised the staff above his head and brought it down on the phylactery. The head of the staff made contact, and with a flash of light, the vial shattered. The lich gave an ear-splitting scream as its blood ran across the floor of its tomb, and a moment later, the skeleton crumbled, settling into a pile of dark ashes. 
The tomb was much quieter now, filled only with the sounds of Banor and Galen's ragged breathing, the former's being much more intense as he clutched his injured arm. Galen rushed to his brother's side, taking his goat arm around his shoulder. Akanas, the warrior muttered, somehow finding the strength to walk on his own and quickly leading his brother out of the tomb. They fell before the rubble, finding their uncle pinned beneath the boulder beneath it. The two struggled to clear the hefty stones, but eventually they freed their uncle and gently propped him up. I think I'll leave off there. Yeah, that's a probably good stalking place. Man, that actually, I think, fit right into the model in a really, really good way. What do you think? Mm, probably, if I were to examine it, I'd probably get myself caught up in the details of the magic and how it works and all that. But um, yeah. I'd like to think it's ex executed reasonably well. Yeah, I do. Uh, I'll I'll jump in a little bit of the analysis. So the first paragraph does a lot of heavy lifting right away, which is good because that sets the pacing for the action scene. Uh, it speeds it up. So uh, we have the characters Banner and Galen and uh, Ancanus, and they're here. They're very clearly trying to um, either avoid the stakes that are set here is they're not they're trying not to get killed by this group of skeletons outside of the door. So right away their lives are at stake. Um, and they, they do mention treasure shortly after, which is a nice additional stake, right? So we both you are playing both on the the fact that they are in danger and they might die. Having multiple characters here increases the chances that someone is going to die and that increases the believability. So that works by itself. But also the fact that they want something else on top of just not dying gives us a bit of intrigue and interest. It's like, oh, okay, like which stakes are going to give way to which, right? And we kind of see that as as we go on. Um, and we have a complication where uh, right away, okay, the skeletons are outside, um, they're throwing themselves, and then all of a sudden they, you know, the the pounding stops. And that's actually a kind of form of complication because it's like, oh, this is good, right? Now we're safe. That gets flipped over when one of the other characters is like, oh, no, no, no. What it means is that we're actually in more danger. Um, so you have this very – it's a miniature one. It's a little bitty one. But the miscomprehension of the characters, the moment of relief, that's actually not a relief. It's a, it's a rapid increase uh, in tension because actually what that means is we're almost out of time. Um, in the same way that you might experience it in in a moment where you think you've gotten past the danger, and then to relearn it's there is almost worse than having known it was there the whole time. So uh, I thought that fit with the let's say complication, and it just proceeds from there from them finding the treasure. That's their secondary thing that's at stake. They want to get rich. Um, that being a trap, so then their lives are now at danger. So what seemed to be um, you know, spent tension of, oh, we found uh, a treasure, perhaps the way out. And then we open it up, bam, it was a trap, right? So then all of a sudden, the, it's a finding the way out gives some relief that then builds, like spikes the tension because the, low, the you know, the, the more relief that you give that springs back into danger, the, the higher the, the tension spikes up. Uh, and the fight scene is you, the way that you have it goes back and forth as well. Like someone tries to get the advantage on like the lich. Like, so the lich takes the advantage and someone like, Oh, the phylactery, he gets it. Oh, it doesn't break. Then the, uh, the wizard comes in. It's like, but I can break it. Uh, but then it turns out, well, the lizard's not really a match for the, the, the lich. And so the lich then beats him down and you can see that back and forth and back and forth the whole time where you have this fluctuation that, holds you know really holds her interest 
And also a lot of the writing is pretty decent too, I have to say. I liked the uh, figures of speech, the staff being held like an executioner's axe and all that. All right. Well, that was Brad's piece. I hope you are all as impressed as I was. Um, I'll go ahead and read. Um, let's see. I'm going to do, I'll do this. This is a pretty short one. It may or may not. Um, it may or may not fit as well because it's so short. I have a longer piece that I actually think just thinking about it, no, it will, but we'll see. So uh, what I'd like for you to do, Brad, is just to listen close. You can read along. We're going to read the excerpt at the top uh, from Disciple of the Wind, um, which I actually have as the Disciple of the Wind, but it's just Disciple of the Wind. Um, so the backdrop for those of you listening to this, uh, we have a character, Cursed. Um, so he looks like Ganesh. So he's a, he's a, like, Asian dude with an elephant head, and he is walking through the dank alleys of uh, essentially fantasy Hong Kong, um, and he runs into a couple of gangsters shaking down a local uh, like inn owner for some protection money. Um, curse words ahead, so be aware. The fuck is you, freak? The first man screams, panicked as soon as he gets a clear look at my face. He doesn't wait for me to answer, but rushes forward with a crooked overhead saber stroke, wild and utterly without technique, typical of landed banditry who, unlike their seafaring pirate brethren, prey mostly on helpless peasants and city dwellers. Leading with his wrist, he makes it easy for me to catch his arm before the blade can even come into play. My free hand secures his shoulder. I turn, hoist him on my back, and swing rearward my leg and hips. The momentum sends him arcing through the air before slamming down into a shallow mud puddle. He won't be trying that again, at least not for a while. His wrist is broken, and probably a few ribs as well, the weight of his armor adding to the impact. I take the moaning thug's saber from the puddle and wipe the mud from the blade on his silks. Turning to his companion, I say, It was not my intention to interfere with your business. But now that I have, it would be best if we resolve this peacefully. Please, collect your friend and leave. There is no reason to spill blood over a meaningless conflict. Still squinting, saber in its sca uh, sorry, still squinting, saber still in its scabbard, the Woku bandit whispers, What are you? I am the wind, I answer as Zhenzhang fills the byway with a preternatural chill. The thug shivers, grunting to himself before barking at his fellow, Juro, you idiot. You've sealed your own fate. Then he steps back into the far alley, watching me before turning and running off into the Hong Kong fog. All right, and that's that little excerpt. So I actually don't think that that uh, fits onto the pattern that we described. So uh, what do you think, Brad? Um elements of it are there but i think it's it's a little too brief of a scene for that whole for for that pattern to be established because he basically walks up to these guys they try to attack him and he just you know pushes them off i, I think it's well i think i think things well executed because you have a little bit of world building detail in here which normally would take away from the the urgency of a fight scene but it it establishes a sort of opponent he's up against you know the 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 comment about preying on on helpless peasants. It shows that yeah, this is this is no big deal. Yeah, so it seems like what we've uh, what I uh, 
posted here and accidentally uncovered is a different type of action scene that seems to serve a different purpose, right? Um, we're not exactly building and spending tension in, in the same way. We are, uh, if anything, maybe establishing, you mentioned uh, setting details, right? Look, I, could, I managed a little bit of world building, perhaps a bit of characterization as well um, between the dialogue, right? Knows what he's capable of, and that he can so easily deal with these guys. Yeah, and that he doesn't really want to, right? Um, So, what that suggests here is a secondary purpose for action sequences. So, within an action sequence, um, one can actually, I'm going to stop here and not call it a sequence, right? Because that's the difference. What we're when we're talking about uh, this just occurred to me, so maybe this is nonsense. Tell me what you think. I think we should delineate between action scenes and action sequences. An action sequence follows the plot structure exactly like your piece just did. This is a single scene in which there is action going on, but the action is not really the point. All the other elements are at play here, right? We are looking at uh, setting. We're looking at character. Um, In this case, we're not looking at a lot of plot, um, but we could very well. This could be... Actually, no, no, no. I take that back. I think that's part of the difference. Sequences focus more on the plot, whereas a single action scene serves the elements of setting and character more. Um, now, character is going to be in both, definitely, because character is inter- uh, related to plot. But yeah, I think that's the difference. What do you think? I think so. It makes sense to me. Yeah, so that might be useful for those out there as well who who are writing. Think of whether or not you're writing a scene or whether you're writing a sequence. If you're writing a sequence, it can be quite long. It perhaps needs to be quite long. Um, When you're writing a sequence, like Brad pointed out, you got to deal with plot, right? This has some, you know, long long term consequences on the plot. Now, an action scene by itself can exist. You don't need to necessarily. have something that follows that structure that we mentioned before. However, what you need to be doing with that scene is not mere, uh, let's say, titillation, right? Uh, because you're not going to be able to accomplish it really um, because the, the there is nothing really at stake here. Like you mentioned before, it was very clear that these guys were no threat. So there wasn't really anything at stake. So we were learning something else through the action. You could almost say that an action scene is a good place for showing, not telling, right? Um, but it's not the greatest place for the development of of, of plot within within your story, maybe. Does that seem to hold water to you, Brad? I think so, because like I said, in a, in a very brief scene like that, there's really not much room to, to further the plot. Yeah. So if you'll indulge me, why don't we read a little bit of my second excerpt since that one was pretty pretty brief. This one's from The Tears of Winter. Um, essentially, we have a character who is, is kind of like a Viking, but he himself is not a Viking. Uh, he is a, a poet, an orator who um, you know sings the legends of other men, and he's tired of it. And so now he's challenging one of these heroes, one of these champions, um, 
to a, a duel because uh, essentially they, they're insulting each other, and so now they have to fight it out. Um, this champion uh, has what's called a shield maiden, which is basically his wife uh, who carries around his two shields. The reason why he has two shields is because there are two different types of magical monsters, and you need a shield embossed with either, either iron or silver, depending on what you're fighting. And it's a pain to carry around two shields, so you've got someone else to help carry you, your extra shield. Um, with that, uh, I'll go ahead and begin. With that, the champion rushed for my great-great-grandfather, who hardly had time to raise his borrowed shield. I'm sure he looked a fool, stood there, panicked with his shield arm extended, and his other hand cocked back, gripping tight the crystal rose. By the way, the uh, witch came in and gave him a crystal rose to fight with because he didn't have a sword. Not unlike the lies told in the oratory scrolls submitted by those lesser heroes, those stupid dissident youths who protested Yggdrasil's war with the Skraeling, as if such saccharine symbols would stop the black savages from storming our citadels. Idiots, I say, doomsayers, evidence of the decay of our once great nation. And just like them, Sieg found himself helpless, hiding behind someone else's ward while blow after blow on the broad blade, or sorry, from the broad-bladed sword fell upon the face of his shield, twisting it back and forth in his untrained hand. He didn't know how to hold the reinforced, sorry, can't read today. He didn't know to hold the reinforced edge forward. He didn't even know how to properly stand. So constantly he stumbled and staggered, reaching wastefully to meet each stroke rather than to let it come to him. He made every mistake of an up-jumped novice, and before the end of their fourth exchange was wheezing worse than if he'd breathed miasma. Old crone, cried Sieg between gasps. Old crone, how doth one ascend such a mountain with naught but a bloody hands and a fragile flower? The Valerie cackled, answering long and critically as women are always wont to do. How doth a maiden girl bend the wheel of a hero? Or doth a mother oblige a man? Or doth a harlot sway a cleric? Through beauty and blood do they take, pose yeah, take possession of man's strength. Then with it they create new beauty, new blood, new life, new strength. And what doth that mean? begged Sieg, his legs reeling, his shoulders numb with a pain like fire and lightning as he clashed shields with the arrow for the dozenth time. He wouldn't last much longer. The champion had only toyed with him thus, but as soon as Yale grew bored of playing, a deft thrust or swift chop would put an end to Sieg's game. He needed to act fast, before that happened, yet he received no reply from his strange benefactor. Not the first nor second time he asked. Only silence. Old crone? Sieg stole a glance about the dais between blows and saw that the old woman was gone. She'd abandoned him, fickle as the wind, with nothing but a false rose and a riddle. How doth one ascend such a mountain? Through beauty and blood, beauty and blood. The flower. All at once it struck my great-great-grandfather like uh, the bashing edge of the champion's shield. There was power in the crystal petals so crimson by the covenant he'd signed in his very own blood, a covenant he kept close to his heart. It lightened his arms, inspired his mind like the whispering spirit of the eye of Amjean, so that when Yarrow called out, This is thy final chance. Yield, pontiff's thrall, and relinquish thy fool's errand, or face the wrath of the patriarch's judgment. Sieg smiled and said, Then slay me if thou canst, and send my soul to whom it belongeth, to Lady Titania atop her mountain hell, where on the shores of Lake Fervor, the navel of the world, she awaiteth the man worthy to court her. 
uh, and I'll, I'll go ahead and, and, and stop there. We, we're a little bit before the climax, but we can kind of see where the, the story is going, and I don't want to ramble on too long. Um, so I think that one was a little bit more fitting. What about you? I, th- I think so. Is that back and forth between the characters that you mentioned before? There's some sprinkling in of detail. There's there's a lot of character voice and how the how it's uh, in, in in the narration. Um, it's difficult to judge the stakes and how invested we are coming in the middle of things, but um, yeah, I, I think it's well executed. Yeah, I'll say that a bit of the exposition is in well the exposition of the story, so. Um, Perhaps I could have reeled back further. I was trying to get it in, in as, as close to the action as possible. Uh, I perhaps went too close there. Um, but yeah, he, he he wants to go on, go out and explore this mountain. He's being prevented by the man in front of him. Um, and then he has that question. is like, how am I supposed to do this? I'm being beaten down. Then the, the Eureka moment. And as you could guess, that Eureka moment lets him overcome his enemy and eventually uh, to win that fight. So we do see that with the longer, and this does go on for quite a while. I think my ex, the second excerpt is even, it's either just as long. Yeah, it looks about just as long as yours. Um, and we both cut us off early. But yeah, these long, these long scenes, these sequences, I should call them, do very much seem to uh, resolve some complication in the plot themselves, right? So you can think of an action sequence as the method by which one res- uh, resolves the complication that one is currently in in the plot so that the plot may advance forward um, as opposed to the scene itself the singular scene which may serve other purposes but does not necessarily uh, let's say advance the plot Um, yeah I, i think that fits pretty well that that begs a question in my mind though is when would I really want to use an an action scene in the way that I gave my example piece or versus an action sequence? Like what justifies delving into that little bit of action? Uh, because you might you might think, well, are we not just throwing in action when we we don't have to? Like what what justifies it, do you think? It depends on what the story calls for is the short answer I can give on what's necessary to advance the plot or what's necessary just to give a little bit of character development. Yeah, and if it's not necessary to advance the plot per se, hmm, okay, so what occurs into my mind is that it might be useful to use action scenes for transitions. I know that seems kind of odd, but what I mean is the action scene might be a way to move the character out of one set of sequences and into another set of sequences. Um, So that if I think of the example from Disciple of the Wind, um, before that he's walking through the alley and we're we're doing a lot of uh, establishing of um, character and establishing of setting and therefore what his objectives are so we could set up the stakes. Um, And after that fight scene, he actually goes on to, uh, let's say, get involved in the, the actual conflict, right? So he, he attempts to, to make a move toward what he is he's actually after. So that kind of moves us through or from, rather, the exposition into the 
rising action itself, even though it not isn't really part of the rising action. It it it's it's a it's a bit of the setting so that when we uh, I can't remember exactly where that's in relation to. There's a gigantic flashback in the story, um, but that scene, that action scene, is definitely a setup that that allows us to finish where he is at now and gives him a reason to leave immediately um, while also giving us the details that I want to give before we actually get to places where it would be useful for the reader to have them. Um, do you think that you've ever done that with any actions, uh, scenes as opposed to sequences where you, you use it to transition out of or into another uh, let's say a longer set of sequences. Uh, I think the example that comes to mind would be from my first book where toward the end of the first act, so the two main characters are the Prince Malcolm and the mercenary Aradel. They're at, they're preparing to flee the country and they're at the southernmost city in the country. They're, they're just about to leave, just about to track, uh, to begin their trek off in the wilderness to a neighboring country. And on the way out, they're confronted by bounty hunters because there's, there, there's been a bounty placed on their head. And Aradel approaches these guys, quickly assessing them and saying, no, these guys are amateurs, they're poorly equipped, they don't know what they're doing. And he baits one into charging at him, but just, uh, how, how does it play out exactly? The guy goes to make a strike, and he just he he disarms him and bends the weapon, shows them that it's that it's that it's shitty quality, and basically says, "Get out of here! You don't know what you're doing." And then, of course, the town guards show up and they flee immediately after that. Um, that's used. I guess you could say that's used in the transition way that you mentioned, but I also use it as a bit of character development to show Aradel being willing to show mercy because this is just a chapter or two after he kills a guy in self defense, and it leads to a little conversation with Malcolm at the campfire afterwards. It does sound very similar to the disciple section, yeah. I think it's perhaps both the characterization and the transition, right? Because they're about to leave. So we're about to, I assume that's probably, what, at the end of a chapter, right? Yeah, getting towards the end of the chapter, where, getting towards the end of the first act where, like I said, they're preparing to flee the country after failing to uh, murder the king. And, yeah, they're, they're, they're at the southernmost southernmost city to track off in the wilderness. And it's basically, it's going... End of Act 1, beginning of Act 2, essentially. Yeah, so essentially there's a bit of characterization that we're going to want to have going forward. Um, that if you didn't put it in this particular action scene, you'd probably want to put it somewhere else in the story, uh, whether that be before or after, but it's got to come somewhere. And so that does seem to me to be a really good place to put them uh, because it it allows you to again, show rather than tell. Because one of the things about action is you're describing people doing things, right? As opposed to people saying things, it's dialogue, um, as opposed to telling the reader something that would be exp uh, exposition. So we can almost uh, kind of come up with categories here. Like you can say things, um, that's like dialogue. You can tell things. I know saying and telling are like synonyms, but for the sake sake of the conversation, um, mm -hmm. saying is dialogue. It'd be, it'd be the author telling versus the character telling. Yes, and they do come off differently um, because sometimes exposition is acceptable to be told, but not acceptable to be said by the characters because it doesn't make any sense. They'd be saying that right now. Um, yeah, right. The exposition and dialogue, but yeah, saying, telling, and showing. And so when it is time to show a thing in scene as opposed to tell a thing, that's a really, a really 
good way to use action scenes. Brad, what do you think you might want to show with an action scene? Again, we're not talking about sequences, though you might do this in a sequence as well. Um, but specifically for these smaller action scenes, what do you think we would rather show than tell? You already kind of hinted at qualities of character might be uh, some attributes that are, are preferable, right? I want to show versus tell in a sequence versus a scene. Yeah, sort of. It's like, you know, if I imagine you're talking to uh, a new writer and the writer doesn't really know what to show, what to tell, what to say. And you're trying to say, okay, here's what you should use very short action scenes to show as opposed to telling them in um, narrative exposition. Sure, an example comes to mind that I haven't already talked about. Like, like, like my approach with a, like, like, like the one I cited before, my approach with that short action scene was a little bit of character development. It does serve a little bit of, um, it does serve to drive the plot forward a little bit more, but not to introduce complications like I would do in a lengthier action sequence, which also would, like I said before, show what the characters are capable of and raise the stakes a little bit. I'd have to, I'd have to, Maybe that's the key, is that the raising of the stakes is usually, maybe not. I'm not sure. I'd have to think about that. Well, you're what definitely right that. The raising oh, of stakes ahead. is more critical to action sequences versus scenes, but they can probably be pulled off in either, just varying. Depends on what the story calls for. And the length of the story, too, I think makes a difference in that. Shorter stories don't need as long of sequences. But I think you're right, though. Uh, your first instinct that sequences are more conducive to raising stakes as opposed to scenes where the stakes aren't really changing. Um, because the idea that a sequence progresses uh, the plot through a complication suggests that the stakes would be raised uh, because that's what happens when you, you introduce complications to the plot of a story. Um, one element we've we've touched on it, but I think it's worth saying explicitly because both of our protagonists in this case did this. So, Disciple of the Wind, and uh, remind me of the the title of the work that you talked about your action scene from. Uh, my first book, Kingslayers. Yeah, so in both Kingslayers and Disciple of the Wind, we decided to show that the protagonist was essentially merciful, like they they weren't out there looking for a fight. Um, that they were a kind of, in general, maybe good person. So that's like a sympathetic quality that we're giving to our protagonist. And I think the we the fact that we both wanted to show that, as opposed to tell it means something. Now I have thoughts on that on my own, um, but why do you think that we would both instinctively decide to show, let's say, a character being um, merciful? as opposed to telling the reader through some other means. My first thought is that it would have more impact on the reader to see that play out real time, as opposed to being told some story from the past. Yeah, and that's reflective of real life, right? Like, if you see someone be merciful when they have a chance not to, you, mm -hmm. you believe it more, right? Mm. And so what that might mean is that you really want to show those aspects that make 
your character sympathetic, right? Uh, because if you do that, then you're going to have a greater believability, a greater verisimilitude in terms of the, uh, let's say, the characterization of your protagonist, and that's going to allow more reader buy-in, more reader buy-in, or rather it allows more sympathy, which allows reader buy-in, which allows the stakes to matter more, which allows um, tension to be built, which allows tension to be spent and turns the page with that spending of tension. Uh, what other qualities do you think, like what, el what else you, do you think you might decide to show with that in mind? Like if you're, and, and what might you choose not to show? What might you choose to have characters say instead? Hmm. You're going to show or tell. I think the only example that comes to mind is if you have a character telling something, it might be that they're being dishonest about it or not really willing to show it, or maybe there's something they're not willing to talk about. I'm not, I'm, I'm well, we're probably not phrasing this very well. No, I think you're you're kind of getting around it. Um, an example that popped into my mind was um, Robert Baratheon from Song of Ice and Fire. So we see Robert, we're shown Robert as an unsympathetic character for the most part, um, and because he's not supposed to be. But when people say things about Robert, the other characters talking about him, particularly in the past. You know, we learn he was this like uh, rock hard, battle hardened warrior wielding a hammer that was so heavy that Ned couldn't pick it up or something like that, which is, you know, fantasy ridiculousness. But, but that actually does something interesting where we have the, the contrast between how the author wanted us to feel about that character um, and how the other characters are made to feel about that character and how that can be different because we are shown one thing through that character's actions. Now this is kind of getting away from action scenes. Um, but I think it's, it's useful in regard to action scenes because when we're watching characters do things, that's going to inform how the reader feels. Um, whereas if we want to establish in the reader's head that other, the other characters feel differently, than how we feel as readers. You could do that through either uh, saying, so that the characters talking to each other, or d more directly through exposition. Um, does that seem to be like the perhaps the point of that, like the or the function? I should say the function of action is to establish feelings in the reader, as opposed to establishing how the reader knows that the characters feel. Could also use an action sequence to to um, change how characters feel about each other. Um, have you know if one 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 character sees a great feat accomplished by another character, it can change their opinion of them. You can use that to fuel character development. And one one, one example I think that comes to mind. This isn't a specific example; it's just an abstract that comes to mind with the difference between the um, ex versus exposition versus scene thing. Like, say you've got a fight scene coming up; it's a boxing match or something where one guy is being hyped up as like, oh, he's the greatest fighter ever, blah, blah, blah. He's vicious in the ring, blah, blah, blah. And then you get to the actual fight and it's rigged and he only wins because he was allowed to cheat. Mm. Yeah, that does have a profound impact on changing the character, uh, particularly the, the bystander watching. Uh, I noticed that that's also, that's also a hyper-focus fo on character, like we mentioned before, as opposed to 
Now that could even tie into the plot. Um, well, there's some complications here. Now I'm looking at that because that short scene you just mentioned with like you know witnessing your boxing hero cheat in a match, that could affect the plot for the protagonist. But that's only because the protagonist is not in the fight. If that makes sense, so he's he's seeing it. We're seeing that thing secondhand, but we are it being be shown it. Well, it could be the protagonist is watching the fight. Could be he's actually in the fight. I just meant I meant it as an larger abstract example. Yeah, well, it would change though, right? Because I'm trying to think if the protagonist is in the fight, um, I I could very well see that necessarily being stretched out into a, a sequence. Right, like all of a sudden, if I'm having that happen, you know, it 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 changes things. Whereas if we're meant to change how we feel about that third character, the the perspective kind of matters there. Um, because it being if it's like a character sees another character win by cheating, you could do that in a paragraph easily. Um, you don't really need to go into sequence about every detail of the fight. Um, you really just need to know how watching that fight affected the the third character but if you're in it the you know you need some of the interiority the moment when the the character feels this way or that way about cheating or needs to cheat to win or like thinks about the fact that like as the fight's going on that it's it's not really real um that kind of becomes necessary and but i feel like now i've opened up this can of worms those if you those of you guys who are listening to this uh you know let us know what you think in the comments if you if you've gotten this far about action scenes and sequences because i think uh i i don't know if i'm i need to go back and think more about this but certainly those things definitely serve different purposes and they different factors or elements inside chains change what's proper and what's improper um between them and what they can accomplish um yeah okay i didn't i didn't expect us to to reach a complication in the middle of our dialogue that's uh not not an action scene we need to get video on these podcasts and we could just like have us sword fighting uh while the audio is going i think that would that would provide a good action scene to complement the dialogue be fun overlay yeah uh all right brad i think we kind of exhausted this uh for now we might have to do like a, a second part to this but um you know is there is there anything else you want to point out about action action sequences um action rendered in fiction examples you might want to throw out either that you liked or really disliked one example you you have mentioned how action sequences if they go on too long they can become drawn out and exhaustive one that comes to mind where it's a lengthier scene but it is um it's it just still plays out well, still impactful, is a book I read a while ago, Dragon, by Stephen Brust, where we actually start at the end of the story. We, we, we start with the, with, the, with the climax scene, or with the beginning of the climax scene, and there's a slice of it at the beginning of each chapter, so the, the character is moving closer and closer to the end goal in a brief excerpt at the beginning of each chapter, so, it's, so it would be a lengthier scene if it was all saved for the end, but it's broken up at the beginning of the chapter, so it um, really executes itself a little better than what you, what you might have been risking by having that all together at the end. Mm, that's super interesting. I'm willing to bet if we looked at the um, composition 
of each of those excerpts is that if we put them all together, we might have to edit it in a way to make it read more smoothly. The, the reason I think, I, I don't know, this is a suspicion, you can tell me, because you've read it. But I think it's by forcing it, read it but I don't know if I'd be able to specifically say uh, one way or the other. So, so we can only speculate. The reason why I'm speculating is that if I was forced to do that, like I knew I was putting a, a little snippet at um, the start of each chapter, I would be tempted to have each snippet have almost a mini plot structure in it where you've you've kind of established what the character is doing uh that what's at stake and then like how that either resolves or you leave it on a cliffhanger like right before they they get enough progress mm. because otherwise it would just be boring right like and he moved down the corridor right like it has to be like he's moving down the corridor to get past some obstacle for some reason to get to something um and then encounters encounters a problem along the way because it can't just be you know and he wanted to save the damsel from the dragon so he moved down the corridor into the next room right like that's not that that wouldn't be worth writing the excerpt on it would be something like you know uh delving deeper in order to save the damsel in distress he uh crept down the creaky floored corridor um evading cracked floorboards leading down to an abyssal doom uh, I don't know. I'm just I'm trying to trying to make it up as I go, but like you know, some type of obstacle that he had to get through and past. Um, even if you don't tell us whether he does or not until the next, uh, I think they're called epigraphs. Those little snippets at the beginning. Um, but yeah, you mentioned action scenes dragging on for far too long. Um, you know, I think an action, or rather, an action sequence dragging on too long. I think an action sequence drags on when essentially it is an action scene stretched. Like given our conversation today, I think that's what that is. That's what we're seeing. It's not a sequence at all. It's it's one scene stretched on and on and on and on and on. Um, do you think that that's probably what we're often seeing? It might be the case. Then, hmm, wouldn't that imply a sequence is a back and forth between different scenes? Essentially, yes, right? That's why it's a, it is an action sequence would be a sequence of action scenes where each time you introduce a complication in the fight, a change in the direction of the fight, you're kind of, if you had a camera, you could do a jump cut there, if that makes sense. Um, and actually, comparing it to cinematography or a fight scene is, is probably pretty good because when you have the jump cuts in fight scenes, typically the cut is where the fight moves from one person's advantage to the other person's advantage, which is what we're talking about when we're talking about complications in an action scene fundamentally. And you can only have a single camera angle with two people attacking each other back and forth for so long before it gets stale, right? Like, you know, it, it can only be punch, ball, kick, punch, ball, kick, grab, throw, da, 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 da. okay? Like, you want it to, you want the stakes to be, to be moving in some way. And when you, when you have it from a singular angle, there's something flat about it. Otherwise, we wouldn't change camera angles, right? We just, 
you know, why bother going through all that trouble? Um, and I think that's the same thing that's happening in a book where, um, you know, I could have had in my example, Dushanta, the elephant guy, he could have been beating up on, there could have been a hundred dudes. He wouldn't have won against a hundred dudes, but let's say he would, he could, I could have him doing different attacks on a hundred dudes in a row and that's stretching, you know, and I'm describing different things. I'm saying like, this guy came in this way and then he beat this guy and this guy came in this way and then he beat that guy. But that's still just that one scene of him beating up a hundred guys. You would have that play out in a competent way, but you don't want to describe every single injury. You you, you could probably you you'd probably want to describe them in blocks. You you could have a scene where a guy kills a hundred men and use that as a as a big um, catalyst for a change in the plot or a big moment for character development. But you'd have, you you have to be careful about how you you approach it. Yeah, I mean, I've seen action scenes that do have lots and lots of fighting, and they're broke. It's broken up. So, like the, you know, who's doing what is, you know, and, and you even have changes in advantage and disadvantage. I would say that in that case, there are stakes problems, right? Like it was going for the visceral stakes where the visceral stakes weren't really believable. So the back and forth wasn't believable. And then it became, it felt like one big stretched out scene. So maybe that's what you're pointing out there is if you're going to have the guy fight a hundred guys, right? the stakes have to be believable. Like you have to have something else at stake other than this guy's going to die because you don't have, you don't bother describing a dude beating up a hundred dudes for like, I don't know, 10 pages or however long it's going to take you. Um, and just to have it, and he died, right. Or like, and he lost, uh, you have to have something else at stake with it, or it becomes emotionally, let's say like one scene stretched out. Uh, and maybe I'm even thinking the wrong way, trying to describe it as being stretched out. But there's definitely something, um, something similar to what should be a short. Like you mentioned, you can fight. You can describe. He can fight a hundred guys if you just summarize it, and that's perfectly fine. But that's an action scene, not a sequence. Um, yeah. All right, Brad. Anything else we want to cover? Because I think that was a pretty good ender. You know, dragging things on too long being a problem. <laughs> yeah, there, there's probably other aspects of this we could go into, but we can save that for a uh, follow up if that's uh, if that's called for. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll see what you all think out there on the internet lands. Whether you're watching this on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, SoundCloud, or my website, which is also just hosting SoundCloud. Um, thank you guys for listening in. Uh, to this conversation about action scenes and action sequences uh, and for listening to our awesome work. I was actually rather impressed with Brad's work. If you were as impressed as I would, let us know in the comments below um, because I, I I enjoyed that quite a bit and I'd like to see more of it. I'd like to see more of it, Brad. Where Why can I not buy your book? You need to publish it, Brad. Um, in, the mean, in the meantime, you can find... <laughs> in the meantime you can find brad's stuff uh on youtube uh, his music anyway uh king's wrath uh go over there subscribe um if you happen to live in uh the local area where you can you can actually become uh, do you still have an opening member for uh, king's wrath the vocalist right uh, yeah we still need a singer um and insofar as you're comfortable mentioning roundabouts where you are where are you just in case that oh, one yeah, person's what county? 
Zebra County, Ontario. All right, you heard it, folks. Um, that Canadian place. Uh, so if you if you happen to be up there, um, you know, really, if you're a, a vocalist and somehow, some way, you have found this podcast today, join King's Wrath, become a, a member of of his guard there, and wield a. Actually, you won't be wielding a mighty axe because you'll be singing, but. You, you get the idea. Uh, also, check out my website, wildialit.com. Uh, like I said, I'll be, I just posted a short story there. Um, I'll have uh, audio to it soon uh, for your listening pleasure. And you can listen to my whole first novel. It's not really my first novel. It's the first novel that I like to talk about. Wall Smoke, Broken, um, all over the same places I just mentioned before. Give it a listen. Uh, give it a review. Let me know what you think. I would really, really Really appreciate it. And with that being said, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you guys next time.